All right, church family, you guys love each other. This is great. Green Oak brings us together, doesn't it? Oh. Roger Bosch is still talking over there. <laughs> he can't even hear me. I can just heckle him. He's popular. Well, good morning, church family. It's nice to see you. My name is Annie Neufeld. I'm the pastor of small groups here at Lake. And this morning, I get to take us through the scriptures. Today's scripture is the feeding of the 5,000. It's nothing new to us. Uh, it has been well-worn and repeated throughout the centuries. Besides the resurrection, it's the only miracle that's been captured in all four Gospels, which speaks to its importance in our spiritual formation and the proclamation of the good news. Um, but as with all stories, uh, this story has had different meanings at different moments. One generation reads it differently from the next, and so on. And the same is true with many of our stories, with art, with our symbols. Um, as each new generation comes along, they, they see different details and they find different meaning. Take the heart, for example. We are familiar with this. What do we think of when we see a heart? Love, Valentine's Day. My daughter thinks of candy that she's gonna get. Um, but in ancient Greece, this was a symbol for the plant sylphium which was a medicine and a seasoning and a perfume. Or take the lightning bolt. When you see this lightning bolt, if you're under 40, you might think of Harry Potter. <laughs> but if you were in Germany during World War II, if you saw two of these lightning bolts, it was a symbol for the paramilitary branch of the Nazi party. But if you go back to ancient Greece, this was a symbol of Zeus's power, his divine power. Or take this next symbol. What is this about? Do we have anyone from Texas in the house? Yes, hold up. Hook them horns, right? Hook them horns. If you are a fan of the Texas, of University of Texas, but if you are an Oklahoma Sooners fan, fan or really anyone else who's playing Texas, what do you do with those horns? Turn them upside down. We are a horns down kind of family in the Newfeld home. I'm sorry, Texans. I love you. This is a safe place for you. Um, <laughs> promise. <laughs> but if you're not into football, when you do this, you might be saying rock on to your favorite song, right? But originally, this symbol was a gesture by the Buddha to ward off demons or to remove illnesses. Because symbols and stories they change meaning over time. And the same is true of our story today. Different generations have found different meaning over time. And we can more fully understand what God is trying to say to us today by tracing that interpretation, by tracing that meaning over time. So today we'll be asking first, what did this story mean in Jesus's time? When Jesus was performing this miracle, what would his audience have seen? Second, what did this story mean in Matthew's time when Matthew wrote down these words and it was read in the Gospel of Matthew? What would they have seen? What would they have heard? And last, what does this story mean today in our culture, 
through our lens in our time. So let's take a look. We're going to be in Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's iconic, isn't it? This passage, it's just mesmerizing. And before we trace its meaning over time, I just wanna go through a couple, notice a couple of these details. Verse 13 begins with Jesus withdrawing from the crowds because he has received some bad news. John the Baptist has just been beheaded. Herod had held an opulent party, an opulent display of his power, and in the middle of it all, he had been brought John the, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was also the one who was sent to prepare the people of God for the coming Messiah, and so understandably, Jesus is shaken, not just personally, but for his mission, the world has been revealed as a much more dangerous place. And so Jesus withdraws for some much needed time alone, but as always, the people follow him. The text says that he had compassion on them and began healing. After some time, the disciples came. They noted that it was getting late. They were in a remote place. And so they said something to him that has been eating and gnawing at me for a month. They told Jesus to send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy some food. They saw this, this need, this huge need that was in front of them, and their instinct was to send the crowds away. Instead of moving closer to the problem, they wanted to get some distance between themselves and the problem. They wanted to send them away from Jesus, who was just then revealing his power and his might through healing. Send them away. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They say, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus says, bring them here to me. Where the disciples only saw the magnitude of this problem, Jesus saw the magnitude of God's power where the disciples only saw the, this, these limited resources, Jesus saw the unlimited resources of God's love and grace. I love how Jesus responds, they, they don't need to go away. You 
give them something to eat. I love how he says you give them something to eat because really he was going to give them something to eat, right? He, it seems like it would have been more accurate to say I will give them something to eat because that's what happens. But he says you give them something to eat. You need to get close to this problem. You need to get involved with what's happening here. Jesus longs for us to join him in healing people and in feeding hungry, hurting people, even if we do so clumsily, right? He was saying to the disciples, it's not someone else's job to feed hungry, hurting people. It's your job. So they bring him the bread and the fish. He transforms them. He feeds 5,000 people. And we're still talking about this story today. But what did it mean for Jesus's original hearers, for this ragtag group of Jewish disciples in ancient Israel in the first century? Well, for, the, for his original Jewish audience, um, Jesus was calling to mind a familiar story from Exodus 16, the God that they worshiped, the God of their forefathers. This was a God who provides. And when these Jewish disciples saw Jesus providing bread for hungry, hurting people out in a remote place, it would have called to mind a very specific story from Exodus 16. We know this story. It's the story of the people of God wandering in the desert. They've just been set free from slavery. Now they don't have any food and they're scared. And so they grumble to their leaders. And the Lord says, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you'll eat meat. In the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And that's just what happened on that, in that desert on that day. At, when they went at twilight at evening they found quail in the morning they found what they eventually called manna and verse 18 in exodus 16 says that everyone gathered as much as they needed and this was a key text for the people of israel it was kind of like one of these stones it was a marker of god's faithfulness it reminded them who they were and that they could trust the god of their ancestors Jesus's Jewish audience would not have been able to see this miracle unfold without having a sense of deja vu like this had happened before this story was familiar by providing bread in the wilderness Jesus was stirring up this memory of God's faithfulness that same God who provided for their people when they were in the desert afraid he was at it again and this time in the flesh Jesus wasn't just feeding hungry, hurting people. He was telling them something about who he was. He is the God who provides. And just as God had led his people Israel out of slavery into something new, Jesus was doing it again. He was leading his people into freedom. Church, as we've been worshiping this morning and as you think about God providing, can you think of a memory of when God has shown up even if it's not for you, but maybe in the life of a friend and a family member, I know that those, those memories were coming to mind as we've been worshiping this morning. God, you showed up for me there. You showed up for me there. Hold on to that as we keep going. Jesus' disciples saw this miracle unfold, and they knew that it pointed to God's faithful provision. But there was a deeper meaning to this text that even they didn't understand. They didn't know all that was to come. 
that there would be a crucifixion and a resurrection. And so now we come to our second lens in this story. How did Matthew's audience receive this good news? How did they hear it after Jesus died, after he rose from the dead? How would the early church have understood these words in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, the early church would have noticed a second set, an additional set of details in this story. In verse 19, Matthew says, taking the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. He took the loaves, he gave thanks, he broke them, he gave them. These words would have sounded very familiar to people in the early church. They probably sound familiar to you. The night before Jesus was betrayed, Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, while they were eating the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. This repetition, that's, it's not accidental. It's on purpose. By using these words, Matthew is trying to point us to Christ's death on the cross, our forgiveness of sins, his atoning sacrifice. He's trying to point us and direct us and to remind us of the practice of communion that had become so central to the people of God. People reading Matthew's gospel in the early church would not have been able to not see that this was a glimpse of God's ultimate provision in Christ. But they, they would have seen the Exodus 16 reference and this idea that God provides, but they would have layered on top of that this new meaning that God provides with his very self. In Matthew 14 in our story, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it away. In the same way, Jesus would allow his body to be taken. That's what we're marching towards in Lent that Jesus would allow his body be, to be taken by Roman soldiers, by Pilate, to the cross. He would allow his body to be broken, broken with a crown of thorns, broken in his intimacy with the Father, broken skin, broken flesh, broken body, and ultimately, he would allow, he would, he would allow his body to be given for the sake of people made in his image. Jesus fed 5,000 and pl plus people in this story, thousands of hurting, hungry people, but they would get hungry again. They would hurt again. And so this story points us, it's a glimpse of the, this fact that Jesus would eventually lay down his life so we would be set free. In this story, Jesus doesn't just provide bread for hurting hungry people. He shows us that he is the bread of life that sets hurting hungry people free. Jesus doesn't just provide for our needs. He makes us whole. So now we come to this story today with fresh eyes and new questions. We have the interpretation of Jesus' disciples, that this was a story about how God provides. We have the interpretation of the early church that this is a story about how God provides with his own self, that God sets us free on the cross. 
But what's our lens as we come to the story today? What new questions do we bring to the text? We bring a lot of questions, but I think many of us today are plagued with this thing called a scarcity mindset. This is the belief that there is never enough. Not enough time, not enough resources, not enough money. Now some of us in this room truly do not have enough, and we will talk about that in a little bit. But for many of us, we've been tricked into seeing scarcity all around us. We've been tricked into thinking that we don't have enough, maybe even that we are not enough, that we will never be enough for all that life asks of us. Our ads trick us into thinking that I don't have enough stuff, I need that new gadget, I need that new car if I'm ever to live a full life. In her book, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown quotes Lynn Twist, who refers to scarcity as the great lie. I love that. She writes, for me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Anybody? That's me. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to examine it or question it. Before we even sit up in bed, before we, our feet even touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get from our spouse, from our job, or what we didn't get done. This internal condition of scarcity lives at the heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, our arguments with life. Not wealthy enough, not thin enough, not smart enough, we don't have enough friends, we don't have enough power, we don't have enough energy. And so the question that we bring to the story today is, is God enough? In this world that, that often feels so disappointing, is God enough? Is God enough for the people of Ukraine, leaving so much behind? Their fathers, their brothers, their family, their friends, their homes, their nation. Is God enough for me when there's a cancer raging inside of my body? When I'm single? When my spouse is no longer with me? Is God enough for me when I've lost my job and I don't know what's next? Is God enough for us? In the book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Warren Harrison is a, a priest. She writes about a profound moment when she was in college, a profound moment in her faith journey. A three-year-old boy in their congregation had drowned and their congregation was just walking through misery. And after walking with a hurting, grieving people, her pastor realized, I've, I've got to talk about the problem of pain. Can we trust God? Can we trust that God is enough for us when all we see is heartache? Her pastor said, you cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. And these words from the pulpit shocked her. She reflects that what he said was probably obvious, but it was also devastating. In some place deep within her, she had thought that God really would 
protect her from all the bad things. And she admits that God does protect us from many bad things. We don't know the countless illnesses and accidents that might have come to us, but her, she says that her pastor's point was that God does not keep all bad things from happening to us. He cannot be trusted to do that because he never made us that promise. Doing so is apparently not his job. Our creator lets us remain vulnerable, but if God cannot be trusted to keep bad things from happening to us, how can he be trusted at all? Can we trust that God in himself is enough? In our story, verse 20 screams an answer to this question. It says, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. They all ate, they had their fill, and it was more than enough. The 12 extra basketfuls of broken bread speak to the abundance of God, the enoughness of God, the fullness of God in the bold-faced lie of scarcity. Our God is enough through his provision in our lives, through his death on the cross, he is enough. When you are struggling in your marriage, our God is with you. He is enough. When you are stuck in an addiction that just keeps holding on, our God is big enough. Our God is bigger than that addiction. When we see our kids hurting, when we're lonely, our God and his church is enough. When you're fed up with church, our God is strong enough and compassionate enough to hear our cries and our doubts. Now that doesn't mean, God being enough doesn't mean that he's just gonna snap his fingers and everything will be okay. It doesn't mean that uh, you don't need to go to therapy. We probably do need to go to therapy. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we'll just magically be happy. But it does mean that even when our world is falling apart, God is with us and somehow that is enough. So what do we do? How do we live this out? Because God is abundant, how do we live? Well, first, we have compassion. In our story, Jesus is trying to withdraw. He needs some time alone, but he sees the people's need and he has compassion. And we must begin with compassion. This sounds obvious, but I think we need to hear it. Begin with, this, with compassion. Many of us struggle with compassion, especially in the face of fear or hurt or broken relationships. Our compassion is often blocked by our stress, our anger, our judgment, our worry. When we're angry with our spouse, it's hard to have compassion. When we're hurt by our church community, it's hard to have compassion. When we're estranged from our family, Compassion today feels difficult, like sometimes it's a muscle that we need to strengthen. Oshita Moore is a pastor and a writer who writes about peacemaking and shalom, and one of the gifts that she has given us is a, a really practical tool that we can use to grow compassion. She says, we can build our compassion muscles by telling better stories about the person who is on the other side of our empathy. 
those who are different from us, um, who have different beliefs, who come from a different political worldview. Uh, When we tell a better story, um, we look at the person behind the action, giving them the benefit of the doubt, calling out the good in them. Oshita Moore tells a story about a day when her son was called a racial slur by a teacher, and she was livid. She was angry. She got involved. She called the school. She wanted justice. She pursued justice, but then she slowed down. She called a friend. She said, I need you to help me tell a better story about this teacher. Then she sat down and she started journaling. She told a better story about this man's belovedness by God, that he was loved by the God of the universe and that he was made in God's image. She gave this man a generous backstory. He was more than just this moment. He would be held accountable She would pursue justice, but she would have compassion. She says, we tell better stories to help the hurting reclaim their dignity. We tell better stories to soften our hearts. We tell better stories because we know that no one comes into the world angry, careless, and callous. Something helps them get there. We tell better stories because we believe the best story, God's love and redemption for all who are hurting. And that's true, isn't it? We believe that God had compassion on us. So that's where we begin. So first, compassion. Second, bring them here to me. These were the words of Jesus to his disciples. Bring what you have to me. And church, we need to bring all that we have and all that we are to the foot of the cross. Sometimes in a big church like Lake, we think that we don't need to bring all we have because it's a big church. We've got lots of resources. Somebody else is going to give. Somebody else is going to serve. Somebody else is going to play with the preschoolers. Somebody else is going to hang out with high school kids. In this story, Jesus was fully capable of just raining down bread. God had shown that he could do that. But instead, he asks the disciples to bring what they have. And this is how God works. Jesus invites us to bring our measly offering even though it's not enough. And he will transform it into abundance. So first, compassion. Second, bring what we have to the Lord. And third, participate. We join God in his work in this world. After transforming the food, Jesus gives it to the disciples who give it to the people. They join Jesus in this work, and he does the same with us, doesn't he? Jesus invites us to join him in providing for our world. There are people in, the, in our world who truly don't have enough. There are people who don't have enough water, who don't have enough food. There are mothers who don't have enough to give to their kids. There are people in our congregation who don't have enough, who don't have enough money to, ra- uh, to pay rent, who don't have enough education to dig themselves out of poverty. And God could just snap his fingers and solve all of that, but instead he has this crazy plan where he's asked us to join him in bringing abundance to our world. You are part, we are part of God's plan to bring enough to people made in his image, so we participate. 
Church, as we come to a close, we can see how this story has layers. As different groups of people have read this story, they've seen different details, and by holding all of it together, we see a bigger picture of what God wants to say to us. There's one more symbol that I wanna leave you with as we close, and that is the cross. You see the cross? There, you see the cross above our church. You may be wearing necklaces of the cross. Some of you may have it tattooed on yourself. But the cross was not always a symbol you wanted to wear around your neck, was it? It was a torture device. It was the way that Rome kept people in order. They would kill and torture activists and criminals. The cross carried a different meaning. It was a meaning of fear and oppression until Jesus. What will the cross mean, church family, in the years to come? In a hundred years? In a thousand years? Honestly, much of that depends on how we live into this story, how we live into the call of the cross. We can bring shame to this symbol by sending people away from Jesus, just like the disciples wanted to do in this story. We can send people away from Jesus, distance ourselves from the problems of the world, not have compassion on people made in God's image, or we can bring honor to the cross by participating and joining God in his work in this world. So I asked myself this question, what's it gonna be, Annie? What's it gonna be, church? How will future generations understand this story and the story of the cross? Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you that you provide, that you are the God who provides. Lord, we think of that story or the stories of our friends where you showed up when we were lost, when we don't know what to do, when we cast our cares on you. God, thank you that you provide through your death on the cross that, Lord, we would never make it without your sacrifice, without your, you making us whole. God, I pray that we would live into the call of this story, that we would receive your provision and then participate with you in bringing joy and hope to hurting, hungry people all over this world. It's in your name we